Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. We are taping this on Wednesday morning. And Stu, since we feel like we have such a great connection with our listeners, let's go to the mailbag. We're going to go to the mailbag, but I have a quick question for you first. Lincoln Riley, okay. Oklahoma's new coach, they announced his new contract. $3.1 million a year, fully guaranteed. $3.1 million the first year. It's actually an average of three five. Three five. That's pretty good money for a first-time head coach, don't you think? It is. It is. But it's Oklahoma, and I think you know, you're know you looking at saying arguably the top job in the conference, or certainly one of the top two jobs in the conference. And I think they're going to pay you what they think you are worth. Um, also, keep in mind, what's interesting about this deal is we reported on Tuesday, it is fully guaranteed. From what I've been told, this is the biggest fully guaranteed uh, contract a first-time head coach has ever received. So that is a big commitment on OU's on OU's behalf. So I asked you offline earlier, how do you think Oklahoma's going to do this year? You said um, 11 and 2, which would be a great season. If they go 11 and 2, will he then get a raise after the season? Or is it like, well, we're already paying you a lot? My guess is that would, if they were going to do something like that, it would happen, you know, maybe within the first two years. I don't know if it would happen after the first year because the expectations are high. What my question, I asked this, you know, I did a podcast on the blatant homerism podcast earlier this week was, what, how do you define success if you're the head coach at Oklahoma? You know, I mean, is it if you're replacing Bob Stoops within that five year deal? I, I think you have to go to the playoff at least once. Oh, you know, for do you sure. Have a, do you have to win a national title? Maybe, you know, in a lot of people's eyes, there probably yes, but realistically, you used to have to go to the playoff. And I think you have to win at least two, if not three, Big 12 titles because Bob Stoops. One more than more, you know, this is ten and whatever it was in eighteen years. So I think you got to try to keep up that that lofty lofty pace. Fair enough. Let's go to the mailbag. It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail dot com. We sent out a call to action at the end of Monday's podcast with Nicole Auerbach. Please, we said, send your questions. This is a great week to do it, and you guys responded. Bruce Naveen in Westminster, Colorado says, Hi, Stu and Bruce. What do you think of the idea of a single-site Final Four for the college football playoff? Political barriers aside, i.e. the semifinal bowl sites unwilling to give up their games, I think it could be created into a fun week to celebrate college football. You would have semifinals over one weekend, and a week later have the final game. It would limit travel costs, and there could be events throughout the week. Thoughts? That's an interesting thought. Um, I'm just trying to think of logistics of how that would play out. I I think that, you know, look, from a a lot of perspectives, from a media build-up standpoint, I think that would probably play very well. Um, The part where I don't think it would would play well is, to say political barriers aside, it's hard to get into this subject with casting that aside because you still have the bowl system being used and you still have all these relationships that they're beholden to. So I just realistically, I don't see it could happen, but I, I think it's a uh, it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought, but here's a question. You can't. So unlike the basketball final four, I just don't think you can play two football games on the same field on the same day. Right. It'd just be too much wear and tear from the first game. So would you play them at the same stadium on on two different days would you 
I mean, how would you do that? I mean, it would have to be at somewhere like, you know, a place with a synthetic turf field. I think that would hold up. I don't I don't know how well it would hold up. I mean, you know, you don't want to play it in a dome where you're on AstroTurf where people are risking, you know, blowing their knees out. But I think that's that's another consideration. You know, how much are you asking a, a grounds crew to take care of this and, and repair something in between? That's I don't know. I don't know. how. Again, I don't know how realistic that is because it's just such a different sport than than basketball. is. What if you did it in L.A.? And the first semifinal game was at noon at the Rose Bowl, and the second one was at night at the Coliseum. Yeah, I, I think I think we're 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 pulling the hamstrings to try to make this happen. Yeah, ultimately, I don't think this is going to work because for many reasons. But um, I don't know that the coaches would want because first of all, the, I just don't think the coaches want to stay there for a whole week and in between games. Now, I guess that's not not much different than a bowl week. But then does that mean that you're getting there the day before the first game and then that would mean that the teams that lose didn't have a bowl week? Yeah, that's a good point. That is, Sorry to really me. It's a, it's a very creative idea, but we can't figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. The next question comes from Ian McFarland from Kirkland, Washington. Guys, enjoyed your discussion with Nicole. The media bias to accessible, quote unquote, good guy coaches is interesting. Who is the coach in each conference that were you t- to hear allegations that you'd be most likely to have a a default response of no way. I don't believe that. Keep up the good work. Hashtag bring back Petros. Okay. All right. Vote for Petros. Um, This is a good question. I like this question. This is a fun game to play. All right. What conference do you want to start in? Let's, I started looking at this as, as the the power five. Yes. Um, But we can go the big ones. I have pretty clear cut ideas on three of the five. Me too. Uh, so let's uh, start with the Pac-12. Okay. Um, I bet. Uh, let me guess yours. Yes. How about that? I'm going to guess you're going to say David Shaw. Yeah, I am going to say David Shaw, and I'm going to guess you say the same. Yes. Big Ten. Uh, Big Ten. I'm glad you're asking me this because it wouldn't be fair for you to throw it out. Uh, I said Pat Fitz at Northwestern. Same. I was hoping you'd go in a different direction just because you went to that school. Um, it's, the AC- I mean, yes, I went to that school, but and not to say that there aren't plenty of other coaches in the conference that are clean, but basically they're saying, who do you basically trust to be the most clean? And I would say him. The ACC was my most obvious choice. The other ones really? I wrestled with, yes. That's interesting because I've, like, I just want to be clear. If I say, like, I'm struggling, it doesn't mean I think they're all dirty. It's just, you know, coming up with the right answer, but go ahead. David Cutcliffe. Easiest pick I had on this of all five. You're right, David Cutcliffe. That is very easy. Why why were you, why did you have no build up? You didn't think of him at first? Or I didn't think did of him. Free? I didn't think of him at first. I thought about Dave Clawson, and then I realized I don't really know Dave Clawson, so I don't know if I can say that for sure. David Cutcliffe, good call. Uh the Big Twelve was a tough one for me. Uh I ultimately said Bill Snyder. I don't. Now, was that tough you know, given the, where, the situation we just went through with him? Did I that know, give you pause? I know. I, the part of the reason why I thought of Bill Snyder was because there don't, don't seem to be involved in a lot of high five star, four star recruiting battles. The other guy I considered was actually Matt Rule, just because I know his character more. You know, but you 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 said the Baylor coach, and all of a sudden people are going to, "What are you out of your mind?" Um, because sometimes when you have these allegations. They could. They may not involve the head coach, but 
that's where I thought of. Who did you say for Big 12? I had a tough time with this just because recruiting is so cutthroat in Texas that if you told me that any of those guys were involved in some sort of recruiting allegations, it, like, it would make sense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going Matt Campbell, Iowa State. Yeah, I thought of that one too just because it's almost like he's out of – out of the out of the danger zone. Um, all right, so this is this was obviously the hardest one, wasn't it? The SEC. It was indeed because let's face it, if somebody alleges something in the SEC, you're going to say, "Well, that makes sense." Who did you come up with? I have rationale for my choice here after thinking it through. Okay. Who did you come? Up this with? may sound like a little bit of a cop out because it's so similar to some of the answers in the other conferences, but I went with Derek Mason at Vanderbilt. Because he worked for David Shaw or because he's at a high academic place? More so that he works at a high academic place and I've met him and you have to kind of go by that a little bit. So uh, that's my answer. What's your answer? My answer might surprise you, but I, like I said, I have a rationale to it. My answer was Will Muschamp at South Carolina. And the reasoning was when Will Muschamp got fired at Florida – I've never seen bosses bend over backward to say all the right character things about him. And I'm not, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't say that about some of these other guys who were, but again, if I had to say one in the SEC, that was my, my pick. That's an interesting answer. And you're right. I mean, he's one of these guys who people just swear by, like when he got fired, people felt really bad about it. You know, I know that like, you know, just from like a, outsider's perspective standpoint it was a no-brainer like that was not working out he had to go but by all indications jeremy foley really struggled over it because it's just like it was one of these things where you don't want to have to do this to this guy now the only thing i would say is i mean will muschamp going back to certainly florida but i would also say his time at texas has probably been involved in some really really auburn he was at lsu yeah some really really cutthroat recruiting battles yeah. Um, again, I was just in that. I hate to say it like this, but and I like a lot of guys who are head coaches in the SEC, but I'm not sure there would be the if it's an SEC coach. I don't know if I would have the default response of no way. I don't believe it. And also, I assume because it just because it just means more. It just <laughs> means more. <laughs> and because of our discussion with Nicole about how the head coach is responsible, whether he knew knew or did something or not, like that's the other part, right? Like. Will Muschamp must be might be the cleanest coach in America, but if somebody came to you and said one of his assistants was cheating, yeah, that's another story. You're yeah. exactly right. Um, let me finish up on this question though, Ian's question, because I did think it was good on a couple of different levels. The media bias to accessible good guy coaches is interesting, and I think you and I, I'd like to think, could be pretty honest on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, when have we ever not been? I know. I, I think that's one of the one of the values of the podcast because it gives us a chance to get outside the outside the the lines a little bit to use that cliche. But um, when something comes up and you feel like this is a this is a guy I have a good relationship with, this is whatever. There is some kind of thought process. You got, you and I have talked about this offline where it's like, okay, you know, how's this person going to react? And we're not talking about like. The Baylor example to me was so over the line where, like, if I told you 18 months ago about something Art Briles related, I'm not saying would you have believed it, good or bad, but just like you would have said, I have a good relationship with Art Briles, wouldn't you have? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the definite, like, most 
of what I think you're going to here is like that's our best personal example. Yeah, where it's like you are ripping the Band-Aid off of a situation where it's like, oof, you know, at some point the, the job is the job. Now, I can't say I've never drank beers with Art Bryles. I, there, are, there are head coaches I have better relationships with than, you know, than I had with him, but I had a good relationship with him. Um, but at the same time, when, when some things and I think this is, you know, we started talking about this a little after the Nicole podcast, you and I. And I said and I wanted to kind of come back to this a little bit. Like I do feel a little, you know, jaded when it comes to some of these, you know, rules at NCA violations where it's like you kind of sometimes you roll your eyes at them. And I think the area where I don't is when it becomes, you know, physical safety issues or some of these other things where it takes on a, an interesting place. Um, so and I would ask you similarly. You know, you and I talked about this on the podcast maybe a couple of months ago, the CU case with Mike McIntyre, who is a guy I think we both like and respect, but that that got into a really awkward place too. And it's just, um, you know, at the same time you talk about the issues, you're, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it can be awkward where you're passing judgment on people's character. Yeah, I mean, Mike McIntyre would fall into the line of somebody who you wouldn't have guessed this, you know, you wouldn't have, he might have been your answer, frankly, in the Pac-12 and and there's no indication that like he's doing anything that's a violation of NCA rules, but I think we both agree. And then the board that sometimes these guys make really bad. Some people make, make make bad decisions, and that's, that's exactly correct. what happened yeah. in that situation. I, I let me ask you this: I saw people after. So basically, if people aren't familiar with the situation, so the longtime girlfriend of one of Colorado's assistant coaches reached out to Mike McIntyre. And let him know that, you know, she was being abused. And some of the descriptions she gave in the Sports Illustrated story of what the, the, the way she was being treated is awful. And he took this information and he took it to his bosses, but they didn't go to the police or anything. And then the most puzzling part is Joe Tumpkin, who was the coach we're talking about here. So Jim Levitt, the DC defensive coordinator, leaves for... Oregon before the bowl game and despite knowing this he promoted Tompkin to defensive coordinator for the bowl game so which is just a head scratcher so the school had an outside investigator look into all this and you know basically everybody involved was considered to be a fault but nobody was fired and and McIntyre had a contract extension that had been you know unsigned basically for months while they were going through this and once once it you know came out that he wasn't kind of this wasn't a fireable thing, they went ahead and signed the contract extension. And I saw some media members who were really outraged by that. What did you think? Uh, you know, like you said, they hired an outside investigative firm. The part that was a was a head scratcher to me is it's a bowl game situation. Uh, you know, he didn't have to. You know, he could have just had Joe Tumpkin call the defense and never said anything about it. And I don't know if this would have I'm not saying it would not have been a big deal because of the the seriousness of of the allegations that was going on in the relationship but just I think it went into another threshold where people were like wait you promoted them and I think when Colorado you know who ultimately took responsibility it got to be very confusing but I think the part that should be relevant to 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 coaches is you know, this is not before the Jerry Sandusky era. Like there are protocols that have to be in place. And I know from talking to some coaches who I think are really smart guys, I still don't think 
they, you know, some of them don't quite get this where they can, where they can look at some things and go, okay, well, I don't believe this or what should I do that, that. And I was like, you know what? It's not on your plate. You know, and I think, you know, from talking to coaches in the wake of the Baylor case, I think some get it now. They have a better sense of the, understanding the protocol. I do think from talking to a lot of guys though, sometimes how stories are presented can be, and this is not the fake news thing, but like there is some details that sometimes, and I'm not saying it's in this case that are left out where, okay, what is the coach supposed to do in this case? Because if something has gone through the proper protocol, either through a title nine office or whatever, and it's been resolved, the coach then can't turn around and go, well, you know, public opinion is going to say this. So I have to do something in spite of that because then they run the risk of a lawsuit. Right. So they they're are sometimes more complicated than we probably than, than 140 characters, certainly. And right. I certainly think there's a big difference between the Baylor situation where there was a repeated pattern of certain decisions. And just as has been said many times, the it allowed a really, really awful culture to persist versus Colorado, where I just really do think he just made an error in judgment once. You know, there's no indication that this is part of some bigger pattern there. So. We do need to move on to the next question, which comes from Mike. Stu and Bruce, can Paul Rose improve Arkansas's defense enough to win some toss-up games in 2017, i.e. TCU at South Carolina, A&M, or will the Hogs continue to struggle this season and just sputter into a bowl game? I told myself after 2012 and 2013 that I've never complained about Arkansas making a bowl, but so far it seems like Bielema's best team was in 2014 when they went 6-6. Six and six. Uh, 2014 was actually Rob Smith, the outgoing defense coordinator's first year. They were much better on defense than they were the last two years. They're pretty mediocre. They were dead last in the SEC in yards per play allowed. Uh, they were last year. They were 94th in rushing defense. Here's some concern issues uh, for the new defense coordinator Paul Rhodes, who was on the staff as a secondary guy before. But he's been a defensive coordinator. They got to replace four really good defensive linemen and Brooks Ellis, who is a very good middle linebacker. So that's a concern. Brett Bielema also, and this is, I think, bef when he knew this move was probably going to be made, but even before it was officially made, he talked about wanting to go to a 3 4 defense. That's something that, you know, he had spent a lot of time in previously to Arkansas. Um, but it's not something that the guy he bumped up, Paul Rhodes, has a ton of experience in. I think. When we visited with with Brett um, a month or so ago, I, I talked to him a little bit about this, maybe offline. Um, but I think one of the things that he, you know they that Paul Rhodes is known for is being very fundamentally sound, and I think that's something that you'll see more of. I also think that maybe temperament wise might you know might be a might be a better fit. But again, I'm not sure. I mean. The points that Mike makes are relevant, I think, given what they lost. I think they'll probably be better. I mean, change can help that. And I think Paul Rhodes both has the experience of having been on that staff, but also, you know, he did a really nice job at his previously previous stops. But I just don't know, given the personnel, if they can get that much better in a year. Yeah, I think I think they'll be better. I think Paul Rhodes is a proven defensive coordinator, great defensive mind. And you reached a point in the program, I mean, in fifth year, this, these are all guys you've recruited. You know, if, you're, if you've decided 3-4 is the way to go, then it means you think it fits the personnel that you have. And, yeah, I would expect them to get better. How much better? I don't know. I don't know if they're going to suddenly become one of the most dominant defenses in the SEC. 
but certainly the the level that it sunk to last year, I don't think we're going to see a repeat of that. All right, moving on, Stu. This is our uh, our most prominent questioner, Jason Gorlewski from Columbia, South Carolina. Stu and Bruce, great podcast as always. Thank you, Jason. This season will be Urban Meyer's sixth season at Ohio State. The longest he's been a head coach at a school was six years at Florida. I know that Meyer has worked on his stress control, but how long do you see Urban Meyer staying at Ohio State? Is this a 10 to 15-year situation? Yeah, I don't know. It's so hard to project that far into the future with anybody. So I'm going to go ahead and say not 15 years, but it does seem like he is kind of sticking to what he said he was going to do after Florida in terms of the work-life balance a little bit more. I do still think, like, they don't lose games that often, but when they do, it hits them really, really hard. And I saw that kind of right after the Clemson loss in the Fiesta Bowl. Yeah, I mean, he, he did not look good. But I think he probably bounces back a little bit quicker. I don't. There's been no indication he's having the health issues that he had at Florida. And, you know, he's set up there. I mean, you couldn't ask for anything more than he has at Ohio State. How long will that run continue? I'd say he makes it to 10 years. I'm not going to go 15. Yeah, I, I think he I, I think he may make it to 10 years. I'm not sure he's going to coach longer than that, which, interestingly enough, if he makes it another, you know, through 10 years, then he's basically at this exact same age as Bob Stoops when he stepped down, 56. Hmm. Now, any do you think there's any chance... Like, he's not going to leave for another college job. The only way he's leaving for another coaching job is in the NFL. Any possibility of that? I, I, if I had to guess, I think Urban Meyer, if he does it, goes goes away. I think he may end up back in the broadcast booth. Yeah. We'll see. So, I mean, you know, the, the one thing that, like, just be, you know, just he felt a, a, Yeah, he just, just became a grandfather this past year. His His son-in-law is on his coaching staff. I think that... You know, he can enjoy that. They're obviously doing well. I just – I don't see him coaching at 60. I'm not even sure I could see him coaching at past 56 either. Okay. Keith Pesek says, I genuinely look forward to your podcast every week. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Keith. What do you make of Bama's 2018 recruiting class, which is currently ranked 61st in the nation and 13th in the SEC with four commitments? Man, Bama just can't recruit anymore. What do you think? Uh, is this the normal pace for their recruiting process? The top 10 classes right now all seem like pretty stiff competition. Ohio State, Texas, LSU, FSU, Tennessee. Is Alabama confident that they can flip commits during the season, or are they simply just holding out for four star, four or five-star targets that won't commit until the fall? Uh, I think they will finish with a flurry because they're still Alabama. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised they don't have a little more, a little more going on there, but... I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it if I was an Alabama fan. I mean, I think they are usually a little further along at this point, but I also think that I mean, the guys who hold out the longest are the guys that they want, right? The five-star, top-of-the-class guys are the guys who often want to wait, continue the drama up until signing day, or at the very least up until those uh, all-star games. Now, the, the, the thing that kind of the different factor this year is the December signing date. Like, will Alabama get all those guys locked up by December? Or, because I think a lot of these schools will pretty much finish up their classes by then. Or will it be a thing where, like, okay, we get through the December signing period and Bama is now, you know, fifth in the SEC and 12th nationally. But they, if they close on this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy by the February signing date, then they'll be back in their usual spot. 
the other thing that's potentially an interesting thing to keep in mind is some of the schools that are in their conference have coaches on the hot seat. And so if they, if, and I don't think all the coaches on the hot seat are going to lose their jobs, but if a couple of them do, that would obviously throw their recruiting situations in up into chaos. And so you'd see a feeding frenzy on those kids. The only thing I will say to maybe call into question with Alabama is they did lose two of their best recruiters last. I mean, Mario Cristobal was, I believe the national recruiter of the year by one of the services. Right. And, uh, and Kiffin can recruit obviously. So, you know, maybe that's playing a factor. Yeah, towards that end, Oregon is number six in the country uh, nationally in recruiting. So I don't ever, ever remember the Ducks being quite that high, at, you know, and then Cristobal ended up there. So that's a big piece of that. Yep. Uh, next question, still on recruiting, Jeff Trailer. I don't think this is the same Jeff Trailer who was coaching at Texas before, but uh, and this one is from Baton Rouge. Baylor is currently number 11 on rivals uh, for the – 2018 class great job by rule question mark or head shaking as Baylor football program seems to be moving on from sex scandal fairly quickly thanks you guys do great work thanks Jeff Stu yeah I think that the players the recruits are pretty immune from that right like everybody thinks oh nobody's ever gonna want to go play for Baylor anymore Mm, 17 18 year old kids they're you know they're more likely to pick the school based on they like the coach, they like the fit, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Penn State, it had, Penn State's issue after the Sandusky scandal was just the numbers. They were still getting the Christian Hackenbergs of the world. They just didn't have many scholarships to give. USC, I remember signing a number one recruiting class right after all those sanctions. So, But I do think that you have to look. So at this point in the recruiting process, it's kind of all over the map. Like Miami already has 18 commitments this early. Other schools have eight or 10. So I think Baylor has 15. So I think it's important to look when you're on rivals at the average, because that tells you better, like the caliber of players they're recruiting. Uh, For instance, Ohio state has a, they are averaging a four star recruit right now. And Miami is actually doing pretty well. 3.89. So let's see where Baylor comes up on this list. They are at 3.13, which if you were ranking by that, puts them pretty far down the list. So I think it's a situation where Rule is trying to create momentum, show that they're getting over this, and and get a lot of guys locked in early, but they aren't like, you know, when, when all is said and done at the end and, and everybody's talking about equal number of players for the most part, they're not going to be anywhere close to that ranking. You know, who has, you know who also has 18 commits so far? Another first-time head coach, P.J. Fleck. Has 18? Yeah, they're... They have 18 commits. They're currently numbers on 247's composite list. They're currently number 17, actually one spot below below Baylor. So um, Orgeron has 18 commits, and that surprises me a little bit because they, like Alabama, are a program that wants to get the best of the best, and those guys generally don't commit in June. Well, some of them do. I mean, they, you know, there are, like Clemson has, I think, 11 commits, and two of them are like the one and two player in the nation ranked. By the so way, some of these top kids do. Little recruiting update for people who don't follow it that closely. We had that episode leading into the Elite Eleven with Yogi Roth, where we we're talking about all the quarterbacks, and one guy that we just kept raving about, or they kept raving about, was Justin Fields, and he was going to Penn State. He's not going to Penn State anymore. No, you know when I actually talked to him there, and he was 
kind of non-committal on what he was going to do, but he said he was get. I asked him, I said, who's giving the most pressure to, to flip? And he said, uh, Florida, Florida state, I want to say Auburn. And then there was maybe two others. Well, I think he's visiting Florida right now as we speak. So, uh, so, so, so we'll what see. happened? He was going to be the, the crown jewel of James Franklin's class. What happened? You know, I think a lot of times he's, he told me, and again, this was like literally two days before he announced he was going to open up his recruitment you know, that he had a really good relationship with James Franklin and Joe Moorhead. But I think sometimes these guys feel like, am I really sure I want to do this at this point? Sometimes the guys end up going, you know, going back and, and recommitting, but sometimes they don't. I think they want to, you know, live out the recruiting process because it is a big, big decision, you know, so. Yeah, um, but I don't I, think, I don't think that story generally ends with the kid who decommits in June ends up signing in February with the school he decommitted from no i mean sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't i think that's the thing you get with recruiting is there's just you just never know you know i always thought as an aside i always thought whenever i had some fan tell me oh yeah he was this so-and-so was a silent commit for months i'm like yeah i'm sure the coaches were 100 percent sure that kid was definitely coming the only way if i was a school <laughs> or fan base i was like oh, yeah that kid was definitely coming we had him locked up is if you paid him like 150 grand to definitely know he's coming. You know, how do you know what that kid is telling other coaches? You just don't know. Can't be that silent a commit if uh, fans on message boards know about it. Yeah, I know. That's right. Message boards seem to seem to have all this. I remember, though, when Bobby Bowden had it rolling at Florida State, like it was exactly like this. Like they'd go into signing day with 10 guys still up in the air and all 10 would would sign with them. And it was like, oh, yeah, they knew all along. Shoot, when I was at LSU on signing day, there was a kid, I forgot who it was, he came down, it was an LA kid, it was later in the day, and he was. the hats were Nebraska, USC, and I forgot what the other one was, and, you know, Ogeron knows those USC guys really well, and we were talking about something, I was like, I don't know anything about this kid, but I know where he's from, he's picking the USC hat, and it's like, you know, more times than not, they're going to go, especially down here, there's such a pull, if you're a USC kid, you grew up wanting to be Reggie Bush, I mean, it just mattered so much to them that they, and, and a lot of times that becomes the difference for them. It really does, especially when it's, you know, the last second decision. Hmm. Uh, moving on, John in Winston-Salem, Bruce and Stu, I have one last Athlon Top 50 question, and then hopefully this is the last you will hear of it. By the way, was the Athlon list is now online. So okay. like by the time you we were talking it out, about it, it was just in the magazine, yeah. Was there a stipulation from Athlon that said the players had to have played for an FBS team? If not, did you consider an FCS player such as Armonte Edwards? Uh, by the way, so there wasn't a stipulation, and I had Jerry Rice on my list. Hi. So, um, I so did that, as well. Did he not make the top 50? I don't know. He had to have made the top 50. I will check that out. Yeah, Armonte Edwards was great, but I don't have enough fcs knowledge to know like is he definitively if you were picking one fcs player to put in this list was he definitively that guy i mean vernon adams had a heck of a fcs career as well just and i'm just right. talking like recent players there was that receiver at new hampshire under chip kelly who put up those absurd numbers right i mean look there was a Steve lot of mcnair guys. i mean just yeah. so many guys yes jerry rice was on that top 50 list so there you go yeah Okay, and John and Winston-Salem did have a second part to this that I think is pretty interesting. He mentioned a recent Bleacher Report article that came out 
with the 10 most memorable college football plays since 2000. And it was really interesting. They had the kick six rightfully at the number one slot. Do you guys think that a play over the last 17 years should be ahead of it? Or what are your thoughts on the most memorable plays in college football of this century? For me personally, Crabtree's catch against Texas is one of the most underappreciated plays in that frame. Uh, I would agree with him. I mean, look, I kind of broke that down, that play down for Leach's book, so it's fresh in my memory. Um, other plays that that stand out to me, uh, um, this one's just kind of it's like a a gif kind of play, but. Greg Jones, a big muscled up running back at Florida State, literally picking up and throwing Greg Reed, who is a really good defensive back at North Carolina, um, is, is one that that kind of stands out to me. Uh, the fluky LSU-Kentucky uh, play at the end of that game where— Guy, The bluegrass was, miracle. Yeah, I mean, where I think Guy Morris had been dumped uh, and then ends up losing the game where he got the Gatorade dump. That one, um, the we've had a couple just recently. Um, I think if there wasn't some controversy over that Miami Duke crazy lateral play, that we might be talking about that. I, it's hard to top kick six because of everything that was at stake there. Not so much in the Miami Duke game. I feel like that Miami Duke play became a little bit marred because it turned out it shouldn't have happened, mm-hmm. but. I mean, I remember at the time you and I were talking about it that night, like in you know, in the like, holy cow, does this top like is this the greatest play of the last? Is this the greatest play since the Stanford Cal band? I mean, it was nuts. Uh, where's the bush push for you? Um, not particularly high. I think that I would think. I mean, we've talked about this play on here before. I think both of us were at the game. It still stands out. Roy Williams. Uh, sack, forced fumble on Chris Sims mm-hmm. would be one of them. Um, oh, I, I was mentioning that we've had a bunch recently, just two years ago. I mean, I definitely think this would be high on the list, and that is the uh, Michigan dropped punt snap that allowed Michigan State to win that game. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm pulling how up the article now. So here's here's how, what. How long are we? How far back are we going on this? He said since, since the start of 2000. So. I'll tell you what, it's interesting to me, some of the ones that only made honorable mention. Um, like, for example, Jadavia and Clowney obliterating Vincent Smith. Yep. Tim Tebow's jump pass. Mm. That's pretty memorable at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, We talked about this recently, the uh, C.J. Mosley deflection in the SEC title game. Yeah. Central Central Michigan's Hail Mary last year against Oklahoma State. I actually watched that by by randomly two days ago. I went back. I was watching some like started rewatching some of my games from last year, and I was supposed to. That was the same day as our Baylor SMU game, so I was trying to watch the open from it, and I forgot that that game blurred in like fifteen minutes into our broadcast. So I ended up watching the end of it. Here's one that uh, probably doesn't get talked about enough, but. It, Ed Reed saved my as much as we talk about Miami being the greatest team of all time. The Boston College play, yeah. The 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 Boston College play. Um, now, who actually intercepted it? Matt Walters, I think. Inter- I think was the defensive lineman. Big slow defensive lineman intercepts it, and then like Ed actually Reed, not in his defense, not a slow defensive lineman. By the way, okay. Well, slower than Ed Reed, who basically came yeah, up and was like, 
give me the ball <laughs> so I can run it in. So here's the ones that actually made top 10. And this is going to surprise you, but Crabtree's catch is only number 10. The Miracle at Jordan Hare, which happened only a couple weeks before the uh, kick six, is number nine. Okay. Deshaun Watson's game-winning touchdown pass last year in the national title game, number eight. The Bush push in 2005 is number seven. The botch, Michigan botch punt I mentioned, number six. Oh, duh. The Statue of Liberty. Yeah, that's a good one. The Statue of Liberty is, to me, only behind the kick six. Keep going. Number four. Eh, this shouldn't count. The the Miami Ohio State Miami pass interference call. It's momentous, but keep going. Number three, Appalachian State's blocked field goal to seal the Michigan upset. Mm. Number two, Vince Young's touchdown run in the Rose Bowl. I for me, they have to be more improbable. Like the play has to be more significant. Yeah, yeah, something yeah. About it, like yeah. that had huge stakes. Obviously, Deshaun Watson's touchdown pass had huge stakes, but like. Those were, in the grand scheme of things, fairly normal plays, unlike a returned missed field goal for a touchdown. Hey, I got a, I got a number one is the kick six. Yeah, um, I felt like RG three had some pretty memorable plays. Um, you know, one that immediately stands out to me was actually because I was there. They opened the season against TCU, and he actually this is caught it. a pass yeah, the, as a receiver. Yeah, yeah, and it's like basically he catch he gets the ball right up right behind the center. Like, that was the play that came into my mind. Um, I feel like they're, you know, they're... There have been a lot, lot of Hail Marys recently. I mean, I don't know how you differentiate between them, but I know Nebraska beat Northwestern on a Hail Mary. Uh, uh, Tennessee last year beat Georgia on a Hail Mary. I mean, the Pac-12, I want to say maybe three years ago, had three or four games decided on Hail Marys. Yeah, you had the one, the Arizona State. It was a Michael Bercovici pass to beat USC. At the end of the game, weren't we in a bar in Oxford that that, that night when it happened? Mm-hmm. Yep. What about the? Uh, um, oh yeah. So t- 2015 was the year of crazy plays, right? So it had the Michigan drop punt. It had the Miami Duke lateral. It also had one that gets a gets a little overlooked, except for the call, which does not. And that was Georgia Tech blocking uh, the Florida State 56 yard field goal, and running it back for touchdown. Which was a huge upset that year, um, but so so I don't know that people remember that play that well, but they definitely remember Mark Jones saying, "What a time to be alive." <laughs> there was a play I remembered uh, we saw a lot at CBS. I don't know if this is going to matter for you. Uh, Trent Richardson, who had a great college career at Alabama, obviously in the NFL not so much, where he just humiliated Sinquez Golson, and then Sinquez Golson had a chance to make a play like seventy yards downfield and still <laughs> couldn't make the play. What we, sh- we watch that a lot. I mean, there's a couple Leonard Fournette runs I would want to yep. maybe put into the mix. The one against the one against Auburn, where he he just like throws Struck a guy over guy. his shoulder. Yeah, almost. threw a guy over his shoulder. We talked about this once on here, and and I I don't know that I could put it top ten, but I always remember it. Cam Newton busting that touchdown run against LSU oh, that Patrick, left Patrick, Patrick Peterson, Peterson on his stomach looking up at him. There was a run. I think this would fit in the time frame. Um, it's when you go into the West Virginia football building, you'll see it. Quincy Wilson, uh, trucked Brandon Merriweather, who was a really good defensive back and, and went on the NFL, uh, uh, to go into the end zone. And that one, I think that was like an SB winner kind of deal play. Not that that should be our benchmark. Can I just lodge a quick complaint here? 
and this is not unique to Bleacher Report. It's just like an epidemic on the internet. I'm, so every, I think I know what you're going to say. With every time music. I scroll down this article, music starts playing, and there's a video in the lower right-hand corner of which 2018 QB is the most clutch when the game is on the line. And it's just blaring at you. Autoplay videos are the bane of the... And there are some on FoxSports.com, so I'm not, I don't want to be hypocritical. Autoplay videos are the, the, the bane of our existence on the internet, and I'm going to be fascinated to see how publishers deal with the fact that uh, Google Chrome, for one, and I think Safari, too, are about to block them. Like, Chrome is going to have an automatic ad blocker in it that, that blocks things like this. So find another way to make money, advertisers. Yeah, it sucks. But I mean, there's not even say, an ad on this. Like, what's the point of this? Yeah, I had the same bleach report thing. You, I guess you couldn't hear it, but you'll hear it on the tape back. It, it fired up as soon as I clicked on that link. And this happens a lot. Like, we'll be talking on the podcast. One of us will look up an article, and thing just starts blaring at you. And I'm like, oh, crap, they're going to hear this on the podcast. But fortunately, the way our recording thing works, you do not. So, sorry, I had to vent there for a second. So... Another great mailbag comes to a close. Send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, and we will come back at you early next week. See you next time.